This morning, uh, we are continuing our little mini-series on the anatomy of joy, and we're going to talk about joy in community. I want to look at the times the, the Scripture talks about, it uses the words, make my joy complete. Make my, my joy complete. It's kind, of a, it's kind of cool to see where that takes us. So let's open in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have promised that our joy could be made full, made complete, and I pray that you would uh, really communicate to us what is possible in community, and I pray that uh, you, would, you would guide every word that I say, in Jesus' name, amen. So there are a few places, to begin with, a few places where the scripture talks about this phrase, uses this phrase, make my joy complete, uh, or my joy being complete. One is John the Baptist saying, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So this is back when uh, John is is in prison, and, and his disciples come to him and say, look, this Jesus guy is kind of taking over your scene. And he says, you know what? That's what was supposed to happen. I, I saw one, one person reference this as, as like a tuning fork. You, you strike a tuning fork, if you put it near the string of the, of the instrument that matches that note, it starts to vibrate. And that's what's happening with John here. He's, he's near the, the he, he's seeing what Jesus has done. He's the fulfillment of all the things that uh, he was hoping for. And he sees uh, that happening, and, and he's like, that was the bridegroom taking his bride. The bride wasn't mine. My joy is now complete to see Jesus take his, his place. My joy is complete as, as the bridegroom takes his place and, and uh, takes his place in our lives, that joy can be made complete. Another place, Jesus. Jesus in his uh, final prayer and, and discourse before the cross actually uses the phrase a few times, and this is indicative of it. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' concern at the end of his ministry is that we would be one, that we would all abide in the Father's love. Abiding is, is staying put, <laughs> to live in that place of that overflowing love. His concern was that we would be united in that, sharing that same love, and that our, his joy, his very joy would be in us, and that joy would be complete. John the Evangelist in, in 1 John, he says, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father 
and was revealed to us. We declare to you that we have seen and we have heard, we declare what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Again, this is talking about, about fellowship as, as the believers that John is writing to come to know the gospel. They share in the fellowship of this, of this wonderful eternal life. They have seen Jesus face to face, the, uh, the, John did, and, and the, the other apostles, and they are sharing that experience with them. And their joy in that is only made complete in the sharing of it. He's sharing it and, and desiring to see them face to face to, to uh, complete that fellowship. Finally, this is the one that I want to focus on this today. It's Paul. He says in Philippians 2, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul's concern here, again, is the unity of the believers. You see a little uh, pattern emerging that when they use these, this phrase, make my joy complete, it's often talking about us being together, be, uh, sharing a joy. So, Leads us to a question that perhaps we have dealt with a bit over the last couple of weeks. What is joy? Well, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he, would, he says, joy is a deep-seated sense of well-being, of safety in God's universe. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit, growing as a natural product of the transformation of one's inner self to be like that of Christ, which itself is full of joy. Now, let's unpack that just a little bit. We live in a God-bathed universe. We live in a place where God dwells. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea about what that means. Just as Elaine preached last week, that doesn't mean we are in a world that's not broken. We are still in a world where suffering happens and we experience it. But the joy that we can have in the midst of that suffering isn't dependent on those circumstances. The joy that we have in the midst of those sufferings is dependent on the God who bathes this universe in his joyful presence. We can rest safe in the universe that God has created. What can man do to us? What can this broken world do even if it were to take our lives? We are safe in the palm of God's hand. So that's where our joy comes from. It comes from this confidence that, that God, who is God, who is the most joyful being in the universe, has completely bathed this place in his joyful presence. I mean, I mean, think about think about God, think about the Trinity. The Trinity, before we had a word for Trinity, was called the divine dance. It wasn't, the, they, they, 
people trying to get their mind around how, who God is, how God li- exists, um, there was something pointing to that God is bigger than one. God is one, but God is, is bigger than one. He's, he's too complete to be one. There's so many, God is, is, has so much love there's too much love in God for one, to be one person. There's too much faithfulness in God to be one person. There's too much joy in God to be one person. So we, we conceive that God is three. Like, the, if you like math. God is one to the third power. God cubed, is, he's one cubed. And if you know the answer to that question, it's, is one. But see, God is one in completeness. Oftentimes, the, when, the, when the Hebrew scriptures use numbers, three and seven are considered numbers of, of completeness, of perfection. So God is super complete. God is God to the third power. And then when you think about God's joy being complete, God is the most joyful being in the universe. Is joy to the third power. Joy cubed. Joy complete. Joy perfect. Joy to the utmost. And that is what the writers of the scripture are getting at when they say complete, perfect, whole. Fits right there with those, those ideas of peace and wholeness. So... When we talk about the completeness of joy, completeness comes when it is shared. In in the Trinity, the joy of the Trinity is such that it has to be shared by the three persons of the Trinity. For God to be love, for instance, there had to be more than one person in the Godhead because that love had to overflow to an object. Before anything was created, God was still love. And God's love existed between Father, Son, and Spirit. That was the completeness of love. Our joy being made complete comes when we share that joy. We share our identity. We share our word that seems so small but starts to get at capturing it, the fellowship There is a pain to feeling disconnected. And, and I, we all are born into a world in which we are, we are individuals longing for connection. I mean, even babies, when, they, when they're born, if they don't have that bond, that connection, they wither, they, they, they die. They do not flourish. We're born with a built-in need to connect. And I feel like, and I don't know, I'm an introvert personally. So for me, the feeling is uh, uh, maybe perhaps a bit different, perhaps a bit intensified. <laughs> because the kind of relationships I long for are soul-deep relationships, you know? And I have a hard time just making friends normally. 
So this, this feeling of separation, of, of loneliness, is something that I've experienced through life. And I imagine that the most of us here have experienced that kind of feeling. I remember when I was, um, when I was in high school, I was part of a youth group. And I think that that youth group was part of my identity, right, as far as connection with other people. Uh, for me, connection with other people has always happened here in the church, uh, I was a pastor's kid, so I grew up in the church, in the milieu of the church. And, and my, so my youth group was really where I experienced that. Maybe for some of you, it was um, in school. I know I was talking with Spencer. He, he was like, it's a football team, you know. I always had 100 friends. When I left school, I didn't realize how hard it was to make friends because I didn't have that automatically. I'm like, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of tough. <laughs> so there's this pain, and I remember in... Um, I remember in high school, too, one, there was one girl who had come to faith, and I was part of the small cadre of, of people who were kind of like helping to encourage her, and she was so full of life. And uh, I, I can remember one summer, she came into the grocery store where I worked and tried to give me a hug while I was holding a bag of dog food. And uh, I, I put it down because I couldn't figure out where the dog food went. And she came back and, and gave me a hug without the dog food. And she was so full of joy and, and, and that connection just because we, we shared um, belief. And the weird thing was, though, when I went back to school that fall, she seemed so different and disconnected. And in October that year, she took her life. And I feel like that story... And that experience really heightened my need for community. I don't know, somehow that I sensed that she, why was she no longer part of the community? Why, why couldn't I connect with her again? I felt like I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk to her. I always had a hard time renewing relationships after, after a summer. And so I never talked to her and I felt like, why couldn't I do that? And I think that, that there is a barrier between us that really re it, it, it resists the demands of love. We can come to church every day. Every, we could come every day. We could come every Sunday. But either way, <laughs> we could do that and not actually connect with anybody here. And I became very frustrated with that fact. Um, I became distrustful. One of the things um, that I noticed, Saint, Saint Theophan the, the recluse, <laughs> I love the saints' names, those are so fun. Saint Theophan the recluse, he, he said, to pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord ever present, all seeing within you. The guys in our... Uh, Discipleship school should remember that quote we were talked about is in prayer. You don't remember? Man, I love that quote. But you see, there's this intimate place inside of you, right? There's this intimate place where you go to meet with God. Prayer is to descend with your mind into the heart where God is already there, all seeing before you. But it's a place of intimacy. It's a place of, of 
intimate relations. And, and I've always felt a little awkward sharing that with other people. Even my wife, especially, I think the more intimate I am with a person, it's, it seems even more awkward. Does this make sense? It's like, it's like I'm going to, to my wife, and, and if we're going to pray together, I'm bringing her to meet my other lover and, and talk about how we're intimate together. And that's it's kind of weird. <laughs> and, and I found that kind of in that, in that vein of, of being distrustful of people, I found like when I was worshiping with other people, I would look around and think, do they have the same motives that I have? Do they, are, is this coming from a place of intimacy with Christ? And, and how can I possibly come into a, a community and worship together when I, when I don't know that we're coming from the same place? My joy was not complete when I was thinking like that. So I want to come from that place. And maybe you, can, maybe you can identify with some of those feelings, or maybe I'm just kind of weird with those feelings. I don't know. Either way, you can kind of imagine that place as we, as we move forward. There is this, this word, and I touched on it a little earlier, fellowship. In Scripture, the word is koinonia. <laughs> That's the Greek word for fellowship. And it, it's a little bit richer than our English word. For fellowship in, in English came from uh, partners in business. Basically, a fellow is somebody who puts down money with you on something. So there's a share of, of the risk, share of, uh, of partnership. But koinonia is more about that partnership. It's about doing life together. And often in the non-New Testament writings, it was referred, koinonia referred to the marriage relationship. So now you begin to see the kind of intimacy that we're talking about and the kind of sharing that we're talking about. The fellowship must be something deeper than just a social experience. I know I'm, I'm not an extrovert, so going to a party and, and is, is not my idea of a good time. Uh, but the kind of relationship that you have with one another, has I, I just have to imagine that koinonia has got to be deeper than that. Got to be deeper than just milling around and getting to know one another. There's got to be something here. It's, a, it's about doing life together. And... Uh, some of you may be aware, others may not, but Elaine and I actually came to Detroit with the hopes of planting a, a house where we could live together and do life together with other people. We call that intentional community. And uh, I think that's because, again, of this, this longing for a community that goes beyond just the everyday and one that we can so easily just distance ourselves from other people. So, coming back to what Paul says, he lays out some conditions, right? If then there is any encouragement in Christ, do you have encouragement in Christ? Now, encouragement is a strong word of exhortation. If there is any of that in Christ, now this is a great word too because it talks about your unity, your being united with Christ. 
If you have any encouragement of the fact that you and Christ are one, if you have any encouragement that you can descend to that secret place in the heart and hang out with Jesus. If that's the case, then listen to what Paul has to say. And he goes on, he says, if then there is any consolation from love, consolation Ah, consolation is a wonderful experience. Consolation is joy beyond what, um, what the circumstances would, would bring you. It's a gift from God that you get consolation. Now, if you have consolation from love, that's another thing that we Christians get to enjoy and experience. So Paul's building an argument. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if you have any consolation from this love that overflows from Christ to you and spreads to one another, if there is any sharing in the Spirit. Now this, we are connected, participating in the Spirit. As we come to faith, that is what happens. The, the, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, and we have a participation in that Spirit, which unites us. It unites us together, and we are participating in that. If there is any compassion and sympathy, literally that is if, there are, if you have a spleen or bowels, <laughs> that's the, uh, the ancient idea of we, what we get from heart. The idea was that the, those were the seat of the emotions. The spleen was a place of the tender emotions, and, and, and the bowels were the place of love, right? So <laughs> he's basically saying, if you have a heart, if you experience the tender mercies, if you, if you feel any tenderness in you, then make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. And how? Again, you know, we've talked about this. It's about fellowship, about unity. What, what he says is, be of the same mind. In Greek, this is, uh, this is talking about your mind. Be, have the same mind. He says this again at the end with a little bit different emphasis. There's a unity in thinking the same, of, of having the same, um, same focus, same image. Like if we all look up at, the, at, at Jesus up there, our thoughts are on the same image. And I think that's a good representation of what he's talking about, is that not that we all think the same way, think the same things about the same things, but that our focus and our, our thinking is on the same object. He says, have the, having the same love. This having is like, is like wearing or clinging to. Cling to that love. Or, or if, you, if we're going to mix wearing and clinging, I guess, think, think the static cling of your clothes is, is like grabbing onto you. Let that love just stick to you. Being in full accord. Now, this is a fun one, I think. The, the, um, the Greek word here, if you can read Greek, 
if you cannot, uh, it's called sumsukos, literally means having the same soul or the same breath. This reminds me of this image from the renovation of the heart about who, how we're, we're made. And, and Jeremiah does remember this. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so what Dallas Willard says is this, is, this is how we're put together. In the center is our spirit, which is our heart and our will. And then our mind, having the same mind, right? Then our body, and then our social sphere, and then our soul. Our soul is the glue that holds us together as one person. Sumsukos means having the same center part. So you think about it. Here's how it would normally work uh, on our, we're sharing the same social sphere and our souls are intersecting. This is kind of, this is kind of like you're going to a party and you're hanging out. You come to church and you hang out. You're sharing the same social sphere. You're sharing this, your souls are, are interacting in that. But when you're sharing the same center, I gotta let Drew take a picture. Okay, good. <laughs> when you share the same center, it goes beyond that. Man, look at that. <laughs> well, if that's the kind of fellowship that Paul's talking about, then yeah, it's, it's deeper than what we're thinking. Huh? You need me to move out of the way? Gets <laughs> kind of pretty, all the intersecting circles of our lives. I mean, what would it take? It means, it means doing life together. It means uh, sharing all of these realms of, of personhood together. And that's a picture of complete joy. So again, he talks about and be of one mind. Brings the mind back into it. Almost the same word as he said before, but this time instead of just mind, it's more like thinking. So it's like, in the beginning, have the same mind and then have the same thinking, <laughs> the same object, the same purpose in life. And, and that's, again, where we, we hope to live in an intentional community, where you're, you're living together not just to share the rent, but to grow in Christ together. And I think that that is, it's just a more intense form of what the church should look like, that we are that interwoven group of people whose souls and hearts and, and minds are intersecting, who don't let that resistance to the things of love keep us apart. So how do we do that? I struggled with that from, from my experience, I guess, in the church. How many of you have been hurt by the church? Man, yeah, I can recall at least a at least in story, I don't know, I may have blocked out the actual recollection of it, but I can recall growing up as a pastor's kid, the, one of the deacon's sons throwing me in a trash can. And, <laughs> yeah, that's sad. Um, it'd feel like trash. And I think the church does that to us sometimes, and that kind of thing affects us when we come to a church and we think, how am I going to be real and vulnerable with these people? How do I love them and, and why don't I experience love from other people? I know when we first left the church that I grew up in where I went to that youth group, we would like 
sit at tables and no one would come sit with us. So glad that Pastor Jacob and Don came to sit with us during the wedding's uh, reception yesterday because it feels nice, you know? So how do you do it? How do you experience that kind of connected, intense love? Well, first of all, this is kind of a two-step dance. So just like the Trinity has this dance going on, I think we need this dance of solitude and community. So the first thing is to find your inner sanctuary. The first thing that's so important is to descend with the mind into the heart, into that center, and to become intimate with Christ there. To have that same object of our affection. We all looking, we're all looking at Christ. We're all moving towards Christ. That's going to bring us closer together just by value of trajectory. But if we can live out of that, out of that center and, and become aware of Christ in that place, then we can begin also to honor that in the other. I think part of my problem in mistrusting people when I came to worship and thinking, oh, are there... Are their motives the same as mine? Do they care about this intimacy? I think part of that was I wasn't even thinking about them as another person. I was thinking about them as like flaky or more deep versions of myself, right? I wasn't honoring the fact that there was an inner sanctuary inside of them where they had been meeting with with God, where God was drawing them. The whole reason that you guys are here today is because there is some action happening in that inner sanctuary, There's something happening there. So I can look at you and I can feel that fellowship that we have the same things happening in our hearts. We have to stand in awe of one another. I love that that imagery of C.S. Lewis when he talks about, you look at at the things that man makes that you think will last, the cities, the monuments, the, the great pyramids, and you have to realize that those things are nothing compared to the person you're looking at across from you who is an eternal being. Those things will pass away. That soul will never. So what is happening in that inner sanctuary is an awe inspiring thing. And we uh, are invited to, to share that. In fact, we do share that. What we really have to do is live into the realization that that is the center that we all share in common. That's what makes our joy complete. That we experience that and that we live into that. So let's, let's do something to live into that. Let's take communion together. Somebody want to bring the table over? <laughs> In taking communion together, we, um, this is a wonderful way through practice that we can live out of that same center as we all acknowledge and take into our souls what Christ has done for us. Maybe pull it back towards the stage a little bit too here. All by yourself, look at that. <laughs> So if you would join me, I'm going to pray over the elements here.
Father God, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we thank you, Jesus, that we are a body, that you have mystically knit us together, that we share all those circles of our experience together because we live out of the same inner sanctuary. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Lord, we thank you that your, your blood is the, is the lifeblood that flows through us all, like your spirit that we all have and that we all participate in. It brings us together into a real community. I pray that as we partake of that, that you would complete our joy. For whenever I eat this bread and I drink this cup, I proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 